Chapter Four of the Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Every city and village of the empire had its house of equality, within whose walls distinctions of every type were abandoned. Green did not know the origin of the institution, but he recognized its value as a safety valve to blow off the extreme social pressure put on every class. Here the slave, who did not dare open his mouth to the outside mundane world, could curse his master to his face and go unpunished by the authorities. Of course there was nothing to keep the master from retaliating in kind, for the slave also cast off his legal rights when he entered. Violence was not unknown here, though it was infrequent. Bloodshed within these walls did not, theoretically, call for punishment, but any murderer would find that, though the police paid no attention to him, he'd have to deal with the slain one's relatives. Many feuds had had their origin and end here. Green had excused himself after the evening meal, saying that he had to talk to Miron about getting some spices from Astoria. Also, the merchant had mentioned that on his last trip he'd heard that a band of Historian hunters were going after the rare and beautiful Getzelin bird, and that he might find some for sale when he returned there. Zuni's face lit up, because she desired a Getzelin bird even more than a chance to annoy her husband. Graciously, she gave Green permission to leave. Inwardly exultant, though outwardly pulling a long face that was supposed to suggest his sadness at having to leave the Duchess, he backed out of the dining-room. Not very gracefully, for Alzo chose that moment to refuse to get out of Green's path. Green tumbled backward, sprawling over the huge mastiff who snarled with anger and trembled with hypocritical indignation, and bared his fangs with the intention of tearing Green apart. The Earthman did not try to rise, because he did not want to give Alzo an excuse for jumping him. Instead he bared his own teeth and snarled back. The hall roared with laughter, and the Duke, holding his sides, tears running from his bulging eyes, rose and staggered over to where the two faced each other on all fours. He clutched Alzo's spike-studded collar and dragged him away, meanwhile choking out a command to Green to take off while the taking off was good. Green swallowed his anger, thanked the Duke, and left, swearing that he'd ripped the hound apart some day with his bare hands. The Earthman left for the House of Equality. It took all the long rickshaw ride to the temple for him to calm down. The great central room with its three-story ceiling was full that night. Men in their long evening kilts and women in masks crowded around the gambling tables, the bars, and the grudge stages. There was a large crowd around the platform on which two dealers in wheat were slugging it out to work off resentment arising from business disputes. But by far the greatest number had gathered to watch a husband and wife match. His left hand had been tied to his side, and she had been armed with a club. Thus equalized, they'd been given the word to go to it. So far the man had had the worst of the match, as bloody patches on his head and bruises on his arm showed. If he could get the club away from her, he had the right to do what he wanted to her. But if she could break his free arm, 
she had him at her complete mercy green avoided the stage because such barbarous doings made him sick looking for miron he finally found him rolling a pair of six-sided dice with another captain this fellow wore the red turban and black robes of the clan Aukskan. He had just lost to Miron and was paying him sixty Aikugar, a goodly sum even for a merchant prince. Miron took Green's arm, something he'd never have done outside the house, and led him off to a curtained booth where they could get as much privacy as they wished. He matched Green for drinks, Green lost, and Miron ordered a large pitcher of Chalusma. Nothing but the best for yours truly, whenever someone else is paying, Miron said jovially. Now I'm a great one for fun, but I'm here primarily for business. So let's have your proposal at once, if you please. First I must have your solemn oath that you will tell absolutely no one what you hear in this booth. Second, that if you reject my idea, you do not then use it later on. Third, that if you do accept, you will never attempt later on to kill me or get rid of me and thus reap the profits. Miron's face had been blank, but at the word profits it twisted into many folds and creases, all expressive of joy. He reached into the huge purse he carried slung over his shoulder and pulled out a little golden idol of the patron deity of the clan F. Enakan. Putting his right hand upon its ugly head, he lifted his left and said, I swear by Zakakufakwar that I will obey your wishes in this matter. May he strike me with lice, leprosy, lecher's disease, and lightning if I should break this my solemn vow. Satisfied, Green said, First I want you to arrange for me to be aboard your windroller when you leave for Astoria. Miron choked on his wine and coughed and sputtered until Green pounded his back. I do not ask that you give me passage back. Now here's my idea. You plan to be taking a large cargo of dried fish because the Astorians' religion requires that they eat them at every meal and because they use them in great quantities at their numerous festivals. True, true. Uh, do you know I've never been able to figure out why they should worship a fish goddess? They live over five thousand miles from the sea, and there's no evidence that any of them have ever been to the sea. Yet they demand salt-water fish, won't use the fish from a nearby lake. There are many mysteries about the Zormador. However, they needn't concern us. Now, do you know that the Astorian's Book of Gods places much more ritual power in freshly killed and cooked fish than in smoked fish? However, they've always had to be content with the dried fish the wind rollers brought them. What price would they not pay for living sea fish? Miron rubbed his palms together. Indeed, it does make one wonder. Green then outlined his idea. Miron sat stunned, not at the audacity or originality of the plan, but because it was so obvious that he wondered why neither he nor anyone else had ever thought of it. He said so. Green drank his wine and said, I suppose that people wondered the same thing when the first wheel or bow and arrow were invented. So obvious, yet no one thought of them until then. 
Let me get this straight, said Miron. You want me to buy a caravan of wagons, build watertight tanks into them, and use them to transport ocean fish back to here? Then the wagon bodies with their contents will be lifted onto my wind roller and fitted into specially prepared racks, or perhaps holes, on the mid-deck? Also, you will show me how to analyze seawater, so that its formula may be sold to the Astorians, and they can thus keep the fish alive in their own tanks. That's right. Hmm. Miron ran his fat, ring-studded finger over his hooked nose and the square gold ornament hanging therefrom. His single eye glared palely blue at green. The other was covered with a white patch to hide the emptiness left after a ball from a Ving musket had struck it. It's four weeks until the very last day on which I can set sail from here and still get to Astoria and back before the rains come. It's just barely possible to have the tanks built, get them convoyed down to the seashore, get the fish in and bring them back. Meantime, I can be having the deck altered. If my men work day and night, we can make it. Of course, this is a one-shot proposition. You can't possibly keep a monopoly on the idea once the first trip is over. Too many people are bound to talk, and the other captains will hear of it. I know. <laughs> Don't teach an Affinican to suck eggs. But what if the fish should die? Green shrugged and spread out his palms. A possibility. You're taking a tremendous gamble, but every voyage on the Zormidor is, isn't it? How many wind rollers come back? Or how many can boast your list of forty successful trips? Not many, said Miron. He slumped in his seat, brooding over his goblet of wine. His eyes sunk in ranges of fat seemed to stare through green. The earthman pretended indifference, though his heart was pounding, and he controlled his breathing with difficulty. "'You're asking a great deal,' Miron finally said. "'If the Duke were to find out that I'd agreed to help a valued slave escape, I'd be tortured in a most refined way.' and the clan of Finnecan would be stripped of all its rights to sail wind rollers and would probably be exiled to its native hills, or else would have to take to piracy. And that, despite all glamorous stories you hear, is not a very well-paying profession. You'd make a killing in Astoria. True, but when I think of what the Duchess will do when she discovers you flood the country, oh, wow, wow, wow. There's no reason why you should be connected with my disappearance. A dozen craft leave the harbor every day. Besides, for all she'll know, I've gone the opposite way, over the hills into the ocean, or to the hills themselves where many runaway slaves are. Yes, but I have to return to Tropot, and my clansmen, though notoriously tight-lipped when sober, are also, I must confess, notorious drunkards. Somebody'd be sure to babble in the taverns. I'll dye my hair black, cut it short, like a Totslam tribesman, and sign on. You forget that you have to belong to my clan in order to be a crew member. Hmm. Well, what about this adoption by blood routine? What about it? I can't propose that unless you've done something spectacular and for the profit of the clan. Wait. 
Can you play any musical instrument? Promptly Green lied. Oh, I am a wonderful harpist. When I play, I can sue the hungry grass cat into lying down at my feet and licking my toes with pure affection. Excellent! Though it may not be an affection so pure, since it is well known that the grass cat considers a man's toes a great delicacy and always eats them first, even before the eyes. Listen well. Here is what you must do in four weeks' time, for if all goes well or all goes ill, we will sail on the week of the oak, day of the sky, the hour of the lark, a most propitious time. End of chapter 4